this week, in just a few days, we will celebrate what some people call the birthday of America. I sat yesterday in the heat and watched one of my kids practice baseball on one field while behind me there was a tournament game going on on another field and there were all of the cheers and the smell of peanuts roasting in the concession stand and hot dogs and there was this little bit picture of Americana and there was this patriotic nostalgia. It's July, young men playing baseball, a concession stand with peanuts and hot dogs and in the game behind me was the first game of the tournament, and so uh, the national anthem was played. My heart was moved. Our kids were on the opposite side of the ballpark, but as you could faintly hear the playing and singing of the national anthem, our coach made every boy stop in the middle of practice what they were doing, remove their hats, face the direction of the flag, and uh, I saw all these 12-year-old boys on the all-star team for Wiley facing the flag, singing the national anthem when it really was something going going on in another part and I thought these kids are learning more than baseball this mentor in their life is teaching them about honor of God and country in this moment and it was truly a moment of Americana it was a picture of freedom for me it's what freedom looked like it's what the 4th of July is all about and so this morning I I want to talk to you and maybe a little bit philosophical but I want to talk to you a message that I I entitled trading our conscience for a dream. And I'm referring to our national conscience that has been traded for an American dream. And I'll explain that more in just a moment. Uh, another pastor named Steve Shepard must have been having a humorous patriotic moment when he penned these statements. He calls it only in America. And he has about seven statements here. Only in America can pizza get to your house faster than an ambulance. Only in America are there handicapped parking places in front of a skating rink. Only in America do drug stores make the sick walk all the way to the back of the store to get their prescriptions while healthy people can buy cigarettes at the front register. Only in America do people order double cheeseburgers, large fries, and a Diet Coke. <laughs> Only in America do we leave cars worth thousands of dollars in the driveway and put our junk in the garage. Only in America do we use answering machines to screen calls and have call waiting so we won't miss a call from someone we didn't want to talk to in the first place. Only in America do we buy hot dogs in packages of ten in buns in packages of eight. A few years ago, I read a sermon manuscript written by Andy Stanley entitled, In Search of a Conscience. He was referring to America's national conscience. What he said so resounded and resonated with my heart that I used a lot of what he said to, to develop a message. And I shared a lot of his thoughts combined with some of my thoughts and a message a few years ago. And as I started praying about this weekend, I, I really felt a strong burden. I mean a heavy burden for the soul of America. And I knew that this burden was going to impact what I preached this weekend. And I could not get my mind off of the manuscript that I had read years ago. And some of the insights I had shared in a previous sermon a few years back. And so I'm going to revisit some of those things this morning. And here's the main idea. When the prosperous no longer recognize the source of their prosperity, they become ungrateful. And their ingratitude eventually 
evolves into greed. When the prosperous, the blessed, no longer recognize the source of their prosperity, their blessing, they become ungrateful. And their ingratitude eventually evolves into greed. By eliminating God from our national conversation, we eliminate our ability to publicly recognize the source of our blessing and the source of our prosperity. And friend, let me tell you, God is being eliminated from the conversation in America. Everywhere you turn, there's another case going on because of the Ten Commandments that is marking some historic element of legitimate American history is being removed because revisionist and new historians are trying to rewrite God out of American history books. If, if your kids don't go to a Christian school, there are probably stories about American history that are being told from a different worldview. Many times, some of the facts being left out because American history is being totally rewritten. And I'm not suggesting your kids go to a Christian school. I'm suggesting that you as a man or a woman who are, who, a parent who is authority over your child better be making sure they get the worldview in their home that they are not getting at their school. Because, History is not being told the way it originally happened. Columbus discovered America on a missionary assignment from Spain. And there's a lot of things about Columbus being a discoverer, and there's a whole lot of other things that are, that are, are, are true about some of our, our foundations, but, but God is being taken out. Our, our conversations are, are being forced to remove God at work, and forced to remove God at school, and, and, and anything that has to do in government or the military with Christianity is being legally attacked and removed because it is offensive to some people. And so, the legitimate founding of this nation is being rewritten. Why? Because when you eliminate God from our national conversation, we eliminate our ability to publicly recognize the source of our blessing and prosperity. And this kind of arrogance will ultimately eat away at our national conscience. And our national conscience is our national sense of what we ought and ought not do. Because when we eliminate God from the national conversation, we lose our conscience as a nation. And according to Judges 17, it's then that every man will do what is right in his own eyes. If there is no God, there is no gratitude, and ultimately there will be no accountability. There will be no moral consensus regarding right and wrong, and there will be laws that have been drafted by immoral people that will replace a national conscience that was one time uh, accountable to God. With everything going on in our nation at this moment, and with this being an election year, I imagine that you have had a few charged conversations with your television, perhaps the president, or a talk show host, or a congressman, or woman, or maybe you've thrown something at Bill O'Reilly or Anderson Cooper, whoever it is you love to hate on television. And I would imagine you've joined into a few politically charged conversations around lunch or at the office cubicle or on an airplane. It's difficult not to have an opinion even if you don't have many answers. And we all have a good bit of emotion even when we don't have a lot of information. So if 
We were marching today outside of the Capitol as a church, which many people are. You've got the Occupy Wall Street movements and the environmentalist movements and the big government people and the small government people and, and you've got uh, the socialist people and you've got the democracy or capitalism people and, and, and every one of us might have a sign that says something else because uh, there are so many issues. And a lot of those issues don't impact or intersect biblically. But many, many of those issues we face as a nation intersect with biblical principles. The current debates continues to be framed in the media as the rich versus the not so rich. Capitalism versus socialism. Big government versus big business. Republican versus Democrat. But this morning, I think there is another contrast that better shapes the debate and will better frame our national conversation. One that if taken seriously will take our nation back to its roots as a nation and help us restore our national uh, conscience. Before I tell you what that contrast is, um, I want us to talk for a moment about what a conscience is. We need to understand what a conscience is. A conscience is the internal part of us that informs our oughts and our ought nots. Our conscience is our internal moral code. Our conscience whispers to us issues about right and wrong. When you violate your conscience, there is guilt. And if you violate your conscience, you have one of two choices. You can continue to ignore the guilt and continue to, to violate your conscience and keep going. Or you can attempt to undo or redo to stop and fix what went wrong when you violated your conscience. But the person who continually violates his conscience, ultimately that person's conscience will lose volume. That little voice on the inside that says this is wrong, this is not right, that voice gets quieter and quieter. The conscience in their life loses its punch when the conscience is continually violated. It becomes what we call a seared conscience. And when the conscience gets seared before long, it grows completely silent. And you lose your moral bearings. The difference between what we ought to be and what we ought not be. Families and communities share what we call a collective conscience. Have you ever heard these kind of statements? There are things we just don't do around here. I can't really tell you why. I just know they don't seem right. The person that makes those statements, whether they're referring to their church or their office or their family or their community, are speaking about a collective conscience or a shared conscience. And that conscience has been formed over time, maybe generation after generation, has passed down the expectations that, that shape that shared conscience. There are things we just don't do around here. I can't really tell you why. It just doesn't seem right. They are speaking on the behalf of a group of people who who collectively share a conscience. You've probably been in the home of someone where their family members talk to each other in a very different way than your family members talk to each other. And maybe they carry on with each other relationally in a way that is offensive to you because your family has a different conscience than their family, a different set of shared conscience than their family, and it's offensive to you but not to them. There is a different set of shared consciousness. Here's the key. In a relationship of shared conscience, a family, a community, a nation that is unified around the same oughts and ought nots, you don't have to have a list of rules and laws to legislate morality because there is a consensus around right and wrong. In a healthy marriage, there's not a policy manual that thick about how a spouse is supposed to act. 
A husband and wife have a shared sense in the family about what a, in a healthy marriage or a healthy home, and there's not a whole list of rules. Healthy cultures are ruled by a shared conscience, not a list of laws. I've had the privilege of traveling and being involved in a lot of churches. And a lot of times, one of the first questions I'll ask a pastor when he asks me to speak to him or his staff, I want to know about the culture of that congregation. And one of the very first things I ask when I talk to that pastor is, let me see your policy manual. What do you mean? Your policy manual for your staff and the policy manual for your church. And when I, when I look at that policy manual, if the policy manual is this thick, I know that somewhere along the way there have been a number of people that have violated the shared conscience of that organization and instead of it now being something that people share, they have tried to legislate what they want to happen there. They have tried to shape the culture and and, and the behavior of people by passing out rules and laws. Every policy manual from the local church to your office to the government, every policy manual was written to guard against a rule that was broken. Somebody violated the share conscience and lawmakers made a rule to protect against it in the future. Listen, if you have employees, uh, if you have to tell your employees in a policy manual not to take office products home from the office, you have bigger things to worry about than paper clips slipping out in somebody's briefcase. As a collective conscience diminishes, laws have to be inserted to control behavior. It's true in families, in communities, in churches, and on ball teams. But people forget that nations have consciences as well. We as a country share a national conscience. Give you some examples. The anti-slavery movement in England and the U.S., was fueled by an appeal to the national conscience. There were enough people who saw it going on that just knew this is one of those ought-nots. And it was a cry to national conscience. The civil rights movement, in the same way, was an appeal to national conscience. The laws governing abortion are an appeal to national conscience. The, 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 the desire to change some of the existing law is an appeal to national conscience. It just doesn't seem like... Like it ought to be right that an eight-month-old child, a preborn baby in the womb of its mother, ought to be killed or extracted, or a seventh-month-old, or six, or five, or four, or three. It just doesn't seem right if they're alive at the point of conception. It just doesn't seem right that it ought to happen. It's appeal to our conscience. Our nation has child pornography laws. We don't allow men to marry 11-year-olds or have three wives. Why? Because there is a collective conscience in our nation and agreed upon ought not in regard to these things. The resistance to gay marriage in this nation is largely fueled by our conscience. It just doesn't seem like it ought to be. And yet in places where the majority has voted uh, against gay marriage or for the traditional family... The courts have ruled in many of these places against the majority and overturned the majority vote. Our national conscience is being rewritten by judges from a bench. A conscience has to be informed. It is born into you in some ways, but as you grow, your conscience is informed, and the earlier your conscience is informed, the more deeply held those values and beliefs are. Paul makes a statement in Romans chapter 2, verse 14. He makes a statement about how 
uh, we are born with some degree of conscience. I mean, there is some degree, because we are created, created in the image of God, there is some degree of right and wrong, even if we are born in a pagan situation without any uh, instruction in the Bible or the law of God. Listen to what he said in, in Romans 2.14. Indeed, when Gentiles who do not have the law do by nature things required by the law, they are a law for themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts. The conscience, their consciences also bearing witness and their thoughts now accusing, now even defending them. So he says the Gentiles who don't have the, the Ten Commandments and they didn't have the prophets and they didn't have anything that would shape and inform their conscience, they were born with some degree of consciousness between the oughts and the ought nots, and they'll be held accountable for what they know, according to what he said in Romans 2. But we, we know that we are, as we grow, our consciences are informed. We are taught not to cheat, to steal, or lie. We are taught about things related to morality. In Texas, we are taught not to litter. Don't mess with Texas. Even the little kids know that. It's a Texas thing. I know it's an American thing, but it's a bigger deal in Texas. You don't mess with Texas. There are things that we are taught that shape our conscience. If you flick something out the window, you probably remember that campaign that spoke into you, that sign you saw, that thing you heard as a child that shaped your conscience in that area. The younger you hear it, the more deeply it affects your values. I remember as a fourth grade kid going out to hang the flag it was something we longed to do because you got out of school early and only the fourth graders got picked and they rotated and maybe you got to do it one time in the whole year. This was the only time I ever got to do it. It was me and a friend and we went out and, and started to hang the flag and in our conversation and excitement about it, I, I let that flag touch the ground and didn't think anything about it. I, I kept on folding. It must have been there for a little while. And waiting in line to get his kid was a veteran, a Vietnam vet. And, and, and he came to me and very fatherly-like rebuked me in a caring and a loving way and expressed to me uh, how bad it hurt him for that flag to hit the ground and what he had given for that flag. And he was visibly wounded from his service to the military. And he reminded me of the people that had died and, and to defend the freedoms that were represented by that flag. And, and it, it was one of the most profound moments of my life uh, listening to this man I never talked to again in my life, but I never... I have never let a flag touch the ground since, and I have taught my own children to honor it in a way, especially for the sake of those who have given their lives or have been wounded or mutilated for the sake of the freedom that we have to fly that flag. It was a moment as a child that deeply impacted my consciousness as a young American. So how was our nation's conscience formed? How did we get our national in conscience. If a conscience is informed, how was America's conscience informed? I will tell you, I believe with all of my heart, our national conscience was adopted by a sense of personal accountability to God that was based on what was written in the Old Testament and the New Testament. The judicial system in America was derived from the Judeo-Christian values that were taught in the Old Testament and the New Testament. 
The documents in, that govern the foundation of this nation were derived from the principles taught in the Old Testament and the New Testament. It, we, don't, we don't stone single women in this country who get pregnant out of marriage. We don't shun the poor in this nation because we think they're paying for some previous life and they've been reincarnated into poverty. We think that is cruel. But some countries do not think that is cruel. They have a different national consciousness. Why is ours different? Because ours has been informed by what is written in the Word of God. Even though everything is happening in a national context to rewrite the Christian underpinnings of our society, there are still the fingerprints of the characteristics of our Creator and His Word on the documents and in the foundations of this country. No matter how tediously modern educators and historians attempt to rewrite America's history, there is no way around it. America was founded on Christianity. Values. The second sentence of the Declaration of Independence says we hold these truths to be self-evident that men are created equal, that they are endowed by their Creator with certain unalienable rights and that among these are life, liberty and the pursuit of happiness. They were endowed by their Creator with certain unalienable rights. The idea uh, of being created equal was appealed to as a matter of national conscience in the anti-slavery and the civil rights movement. It just doesn't seem right knowing what the fabric of our nation is with all men being created equal. If we weren't created and we're all just a nation of happenstance, then life really doesn't mean anything and we are not created equal. But if you have on your heart that we are created by a divine supreme God who created us in His image and created us equal, then slavery cannot stand. The civil rights movement was a movement that appealed to national conscience. Along with the idea of being created equal in the image of God, our forefathers informed our consciences that we are accountable to that God. Abraham Lincoln in the Gettysburg Address said this, that we here highly resolve that these dead shall not have died in vain, that this nation under God shall have a new birth of freedom. Under God means under His authority, accountable to Him. It was Abraham Lincoln's worldview. And because he was a leader of this nation, he, as one of our forefathers, shaped or informed our national conscience that we are a nation under the authority of and accountable to God. So we knew the source of our blessing. We knew the source of our prosperity. But when you remove God from the national conversation, we can no longer publicly acknowledge the source of our blessing and we become arrogant thinking we are the source of our blessing and it evolves into greed. The Pledge of Allegiance in the 1950s borrowed from the Gettysburg Address and added the words under God to the pledge and then it said, one nation under God. Something else happened in the 1950s as well. We were in a Cold War with Soviet Russia. 
Communism was spreading around the globe. And with communism was the spread of atheism. Because at the time to be communist was to be atheist in the minds of a lot of Americans. So to stand against, to make sure the world knew that America was against communism and specifically atheism, in 1956 the 84th Congress passed a joint resolution to replace the existing national motto with In God We Trust. President Eisenhower signed the resolution into law on July 30th, 1956 so that we as a nation would stand in contrast to communistic, atheistic nations, a democracy founded on Christian values. And then in 1964, our national motto, In God We Trust, was printed on our coins. Another way of saying In God We Trust is saying, We Trust God. And it has, it's become so common to say in God we trust, we don't get the weight of what is printed on our money. But another way to say it is, we trust God. It is a statement of our national conscience. We trust God. So if you work for an American-owned company and you walk through the door tomorrow morning into the biggest office cubicle area or you announced on the speakers, what would happen if you walked in and said, we trust God. Now you could go into Home Depot tomorrow and say, you can do it, we can help. Or you could go to Chick-fil-A tomorrow and shout, eat more chicken. (laughs) But what would happen if you walked into an American-owned company tomorrow and shouted, we trust God. When's the last time you heard a national leader, a president, a key congressional figure declare publicly that we as a nation trust in God? I think if it's our national motto, it would be fitting for the House and the Senate to start every session by declaring what was our national conscience in days past. We trust in God. It seems that the only time some of those figures, presidents and key political leaders, say those things about trusting God or needing God or referencing a call to prayer is when we are facing a catastrophe or as a nation we are in a bind. The elder Bush called us to pray on the first trip to Iraq. I specifically remembering Clinton calling us to prayer in the Bosnia conflict. I remember the younger Bush calling us to prayer and fasting in a season of 9-11-2001. A national catastrophe that broke the heart of this nation. And yet there were more people throwing aside partisan politics, singing hymns on the steps of the White House than any other time in my life that I can remember. And then in the oil spill along the Gulf, I personally remember hearing President Obama call us as a nation to pray. But when I look back through history, I see all around catastrophe is what calls our leaders to pray. But most of the time, when there's no catastrophe or America isn't in an immediate bind, we find us trusting in something other than God. We trust in our American ingenuity and we trust in the fundamentals of our economy. You want to know why there's so much despair in America? Because American ingenuity in what it used to be and the economy is coming unraveled at the seams and the things that we used to trust, since we have taken God out of the national conversation, there is little in our conversation that is trustworthy. And what used to be trustworthy, American ingenuity and the fundamentals of our economy are both questionable now and there is despair in the hearts of a lot of people because they don't know if anything is trustworthy. And nothing is trustworthy if God is removed from the national conversation. I hope you don't get offended, but when I, when I talk about American ingenuity, I mean, look, we are not in our brightest days as a nation. 
Economically, we are not competing like we used to. Educationally, we are not competing like we used to. We are not inventing like we used to. We're not creating. Yes, there are some amazing things that are happening, but we are not setting the pace like we used to. Other developed nations have passed us in some areas and soon will pass us in many other areas. American ingenuity is not where it was. The American economy is threatening to go into another recession. God has been taken out and the one thing that is trustworthy, the one thing that is unchangeable. We have removed Him and put our trust in something that shifts, that is man-made and that cannot last. That's the reason there is so much despair in this hour of uncertainty in our nation. Accountability to God and God talk has fallen out of favor in the public square. Every inauguration, a group sues to keep the president from saying in the inauguration, so help me God. The application of separation in church and state gets stranger and stranger as time passes. What was passed to keep the state from meddling in the church's business is now being used to keep the church out of the school and out of the state and to hand strap or hand, hand tie uh, any uh, believer who wants to live out their faith in a public square. And think, think about this. The value that we place on the individual and individual rights is a direct reflection of the value our founders saw God placing on the individual. We are all carriers of the fingerprints of God and therefore life is valuable. But what is so ironic, this idea we got from the Word of God, from being created in the image of God, this idea of the individual is now being used and celebrated to the point that I and me and humanism, the center man being the center of the world, is driving everything and we're using this idea we got from the Bible to further separate us from God. That's what happens when you remove God from the national conversation. We eliminate, when we remove God from our national conversation, we eliminate our ability to publicly recognize the source of our prosperity. It is an arrogance that will continue to eat away at our national conscience, our national sense of ought and ought nots. Because when you eliminate God from the national conversation, we lose our conscience as a nation and every man starts to do what is right in his own eyes. Law will continue to replace conscience as we try to dictate behavior from the bench. So while we line up behind conservative versus liberal or Republican versus Democrat or big government versus small government or rich versus poor, there is another contrast that better frames the conversation. A contrast that if we could see and we could line up behind it, it would get us back to our roots as a nation and help us rediscover our national conference the con- conscience. These are the two lines that are forming in addition to the ones the media talks about. Those who recognize God as the ultimate source of our provision and those who don't. And there is another line. Those who are not ashamed to say in God we trust. And the rest who say in government we trust. In American ingenuity we trust. In our economy we trust. Or in other words to sum it all up. In we we trust. It seems that we're more worried about offending people than we are Offending God. It's the grateful and accountable versus the ungrateful and the unaccountable. That's the real conversation that's going on. The grateful and accountable versus the ungrateful and the unaccountable. 
When we remove God from our national conversation, we devalue life in general and we underestimate our own worth as being made in the image of God. Our self-worth is being derived from being created in the image of a mighty and magnificent God. At least it used to be. Today, our self-worth comes from comparing ourselves to those around us. As God has been eliminated from the conversation, the plumb line and measuring stick of personal worth has been created through marketing. The television and the internet and the marketing mediums are what tells our young ladies whether they're pretty or not. What tells our daughters what they ought to wear or not. Which which derives their self-worth. Marketing makes us and unmakes us. It tells us where we fit in with everybody else. Houses and cars and cash and education and neighborhoods and labels and brands and phones and gadgets all describe our social class that we fit in. And by the way, which supposedly, the social class, isn't supposed to exist in a good old democracy. But it does. When God was in the national conversation, our personal worth wasn't connected to our personal stuff, but to our personal Savior. It seems we have traded our national conscience for the national dream. We call it the American dream. For the pilgrims, it was freedom of worship. For the founding fathers, it was life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. For the huddled masses, it was opportunity, equality, and freedom. But that dream has been hijacked. Today, when you say the American dream, the American dream means more money, more house, more car, more power, more wealth, more fame, more stuff. Instant, on demand, drive-through, microwavable, downloadable, a thousand channels, ten thousand songs, happiness in the aisle of a megastore, fulfillment in four easy payments on your credit card, purpose in a bank account, a barcode, or a magnetic strip. More me, supersized, satisfied, and served, self-centered, self-focused, iPod, iTunes, i-everything. Instead of God being the center, we have become the center. Instead of a heart for Him being the center, humanism and its philosophy drives everything that we do. Hosea was living in a moment like this. He was a man of God speaking to the heart of a nation who didn't want to listen. And in Hosea chapter 2 verse 13, he compares the backslidden heart of Israel to a spiritual adulteress who has left her spouse, God, and is chasing after her lover's Listen to what he says. I will punish her for the days she burned incense to the bales. She decked herself with rings and jewelry and went after her lovers. But she forgot me, declares the Lord. The word forgot here in the Hebrew means mislaid or misplaced. It's not meaning that she temporarily or she permanently walked away from God. It means that just like you kind of lose your car keys, you know they're somewhere. You know you're going to find them. They fell in between the crack between the seat and the console or you left them on the bar or, or you know, they, they, they were left in a bag, some pocket. You, you, you just misplaced them. You know you're eventually going to find them. That's what God said. Israel has temporarily shoved me off the side to chase her temporary pleasures with these other gods. She intends someday to come back. And God said, my heart is broken. 
broken because I've been thrown away for convenience. I have been misplaced. And in my heart, I believe that's what our nation has done. I believe there is enough ember still burning in the heart of the fiber of America that if we breathe with intercession and do what Second Chronicles says, humble ourselves and pray and seek His face and blow on the embers of what God has done in this nation, that we can spark a fire. There can be another great awakening. Friend, listen, America is not too far gone. Our nation is much like the climate that Christianity was originally established. Christianity was established in a godless, pagan, Roman world, and it set like fire. I'm kind of excited about the condition of the world that we live in because the gospel of Jesus Christ flourishes in this kind of environment. We've just mislaid our God, I believe, with prayer and godly living, the right kind of preaching, the right kind of being missional. What we think is, look, if you're going to the ballot box to try to vote to recreate an America that existed when you were a child, it's not coming. There's not a boatload of people on the Mayflower coming out to save this thing. The Santa Maria is not full of folks of of, of 60, 70 year olds that remember what it was like to come in and fix this thing. It may never be what it's like. And as the church, we've got to accept that reality and quit thinking people out there that have no understanding of who Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are are going to be excited to run through the doors of the church when the church doors are open. We're going to have to shift from being a people saying come and go to church and see ourselves as missionaries in a pagan world and take the gospel to them instead of expecting them to come to us. I'm already out of time, but this is what I want you to do for homework. I want you on the 4th of July to get your family together and pray this prayer. I'm going to make it a part of my prayer, whether you do it in your individual prayer time or you do it as your family. In Daniel chapter 9, verse 5 through 19, Daniel prays a a prayer of national repentance. His nation was backslidden. It was a time of of a nation turning away from God. And Daniel prayed a prayer. I mean, let me just read a little bit of it. He says, we have sinned. Verse 5, Daniel 9 and 5. We have sinned and done wrong. We have been wicked and we have rebelled. We have turned away from your commands and laws. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, and our forefathers, and to all the people of the land. Lord, you are righteous, but this day we are covered with shame. The men of Judah and the people of Jerusalem and all of Israel, both near and far, and all the countries where, you're, where you have scattered us because of our unfaithfulness to you. O oh Lord, we and our kings, our princes, and our fathers have are covered with shame because we have sinned against You. The Lord our God is merciful and forgiving, even though we have rebelled against Him. We have not obeyed the Lord our God or kept the laws He gave us through His servants, the prophets. All Israel has transgressed Your law and turned away, refusing to obey You. If I had time, I would read several more verses. But skip down to verse 17. Now our God, hear the prayers and the petitions of Your servant. For Your sake, O Lord... Look with favor on your desolate sanctuary. Give ear, O God, and hear. Open your eyes and see the desolation of the city that bears your name. We do not make request of you because we are righteous, but because of your great mercy. O Lord, listen. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, hear and act for your sake. O my God, do not delay because your city and your people bear your name. A powerful prayer of national repentance. I'm calling every service 
every church service this weekend at North Place for our people on the 4th of July to open Daniel chapter 9 verse 5 through 19 and let the scripture be the prayer of their family, of this church as Americans on the 4th of July, on Independence Day. Start your day or end your day or before you set off your fireworks, call out to God. Repent to Him. Make an appeal towards His mercy to stir the heart of this nation again. I want you to stand with me and I want us to do something as we leave that's really different. This is the benediction right before we walk out the door. David Jeremiah is a pastor on the West Coast and he was the chairman of the National Day of Prayer this year. Based on our national motto, In God We Trust, and the prayer that I just read to you from Daniel, he wrote a prayer for us to pray. I want us to do this. There's a lot of us and I'm going to try to set the cadence. But we've been in a series about the power of our words. And I think we need to pray it together. As difficult as it may be to try to stay on cadence and say it together, I think we collectively need to speak this prayer over our nation. I'm going to ask if they will put the first stanza on the screen. And I'm going to set the cadence. And I want us, we're going to say it slower than normal so we can say it together. This is the last thing we're going to do before we walk out. I want you to to join in with me and say this prayer. Heavenly Father, every good gift and perfect gift comes from You. You are a faithful God and Your mercy endures forever. You have promised to bless the nation that trusts in You. Our currency proclaims, in God we trust, but in our culture we are far from You. In the words of the prophet Daniel, we have sinned and committed iniquity. We have done wickedly and rebelled even by departing from your precepts and your judgments. We come before you once more seeking your forgiveness and mercy. You, O God, are our only hope. Hear our prayer and for your honor's sake shine your face upon this nation. Give our leaders the desire to seek your wisdom and the courage to follow your guidance. And watch over the men and women of our armed forces as they sacrifice for the cause of freedom. We give you thanks for all you have done for us. And we earnestly pray that you will help us become, once again, a nation whose God is the Lord. In the name of Jesus, your Son and our Savior, we pray this prayer. Amen. Father, will you bless them and keep them. Make your face shine down upon them. Be gracious to them. Turn your countenance towards this church, these people, this nation, and give us peace. In Jesus' name, amen.